Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king. The one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. I wanted to first start off by introducing myself. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at GCC, and it's a privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. But also, is, uh, is Becca here today? Okay, she's not here. That was really good. We had a meeting where, where we talked through the book of Judges and what we're going to be kind of covering and what the book's about, and Becca took that and ran with it. She wrote the whole script, and I, I thought that was an amazing intro to the series. Everything that they just introduced, the cycle of Israel's rebellion, we're starting in this new series, so if, if you're a guest visiting today, we're, it's a perfect time. We're starting off a new series in the book of Judges, and so if you have a Bible, you can jump right to Judges 1. That's where we're going to start. As it was said earlier, our whole aim and goal here is to make Jesus the hero. We hope that's communicated through everything we do, from the greeters who welcome people in, to the songs we sing, and the sermon itself. We're lifting up and making much of who Jesus is, and not any one person or individual ministry. And uh, yeah, if you're a guest, we promise not to do anything that'll make you feel uncomfortable. Um, but this is just a safe place to come and investigate the claims of Christ. If you have your Bibles, start off in chapter one, Judges. It's in the Old Testament, closer to the beginning of your Bible, just after the book of Joshua. And I want to give um, three main points to help us kind of give the text we're going to be going through some form today. 
And the title of this series that we're going through, I don't know if it's still up on the screen, but it was a second ago. It's uh, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. And it's, it's purposely misspelt uh, to kind of demonstrate the arrogance with which the people of Israel were demonstrating at the time of the book of Judges, kind of doing stuff their own way. They kind of abandoned God and moved away and were defining good and evil how they wanted, how they thought it should be set up. This is kind of the problem from the beginning, the fall. It says that Eve looked at the fruit. It says with her eyes, she saw that it was good and took it. And the book of Judges uses this phrase multiple times. And that's even a phrase used throughout the Old Testament, that people saw what was good in their own eyes. They interpret it to be good to them. And they do something that is contrary to God's nature and God's law. So that's, that's the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at verse 1-1 to 2-15 today, and the the main point I'd like to give you, three points as we kind of move through this section. We're going to be looking at Israel's fortune, their failure, and their forsaking. Try to stick with the alliteration and make it a little easier to remember. But their failure, or, or their fortune, their failure, and their forsaking. This is what we're looking at in this book. And I'm not going to read the entire text today. I did that in preparing for the sermon, and it took about seven to eight minutes. It's, it's a large section of scripture, but I will point out and draw attention to certain things. If you want to follow along and read as we go through, I highly encourage and even read this section of scripture throughout the week. We've been doing it as a devotional at night, just going through the first chapter of the book of Judges over and over again, kind of chewing on it, because there's a ton of information in here and a lot to digest. Let me give some background to the text before we jump into, because many people, I, I don't want to assume that everybody's familiar with the book of Judges or even what's going on in Israel during this time. What had happened was, it, maybe if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, you might be familiar with someone like Moses and David. Well, the book of Judges falls in between those two. You have Moses earlier on, then we have the book of Judges, then King David comes later, if you're not familiar with the, the overall redemptive narrative. But God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. So he he rescued them. He took them out of Egypt. He had given them his law. He had communed with them, communicated with them, and he had promised to give them a land and sent them out into the land of Canaan to go and take it uh, for themselves and drive out the Canaanites who were, I mean, so some of us, that sounds in itself as something that is wicked and awful, but the Canaanites were actually a very, very awful and evil and wicked people that were engaged in all kinds of idolatrous practices Uh, And not just idolatry, they were literally like sacrificing their children up to pagan gods and different things like this. And this caused God uh, much anguish and grief and used the Israelites as an instrument of his judgment to drive the nations out, but also to bless his people. So after Moses, uh, after Moses comes Joshua. So Moses is leading the people out of Egypt into the new promised land. Joshua takes over. He leads them for a while. There's the book of Joshua that kind of talks about a lot of his military conquests. He dies at the end of Joshua, and boom, we come into the book of Judges. Now that Joshua is gone, we come into a point in Israel's history where they're kind of leaderless, and it leads into a lot of problems. So the main points again, their fortune, God had rescued them, gave them his law, communicated to them, provided for them miraculously at times. If you read through the book of Exodus, and he's going to give them a land, and he promised to deliver it over to them. We're going to look at their failure. God commanded them to drive out the Canaanites. We're going to see how they failed to do that. And then we're going to see their forsaking, where in which they even go so far as to do evil things and engage in these practices. That's what we're looking at today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, this book is difficult at times for, for us to understand and, and for us to even read. Uh, the truth is that there's a lot of evil things that have happened in this world, in your word. But you're a God that does not allow purposeless evil, that you have a purpose in everything. Even the darkest moments of human history, you redeem for the good of your people and your glory. And we praise you for even the darkest moments of our suffering that we don't understand now. We hope and look forward to the future when the veil will be moved away. And on the other side of the glory, when we see how you've manifested all of these things together for the good of your people and your glory, God. So we thank you. We pray you help us as we go through this study. We thank you for this place, God. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting off in the book of Judges, something very important as we go through this book, and, and, and kind of given a lot of information here, and I, I know that can be difficult, but I think this is super important as we step into this. One of the things that's super important, reading a book like Judges, and this is something we do in the teaching cohort here at Gospel Community Church. If you're interested in growing in your theological knowledge, in your depth, if you're understanding of the Bible and the gospel and how to communicate that, uh, Megan Mewson is actually running the gospel cohort right now, and it's a teaching arm of the church to help people learn some of these things better. And one of the things they do and teach on is proper hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation, like understanding the Bible. And one of the key things you need to understand when coming to the Bible, interpreting it, is the difference between a prescriptive text and a descriptive text. That is, sometimes in the Bible, there are things that are being prescribed. These are the imperatives. Go do this. Love one another. Don't lie. These are things that we are to do and not to do. But many times throughout the Bible, it's actually telling a story. It's, it's describing something. It's saying what happened. And we need to look at the book of Judges like that because there are some things that happen that even God's people do in the book of Judges that if we take that as a practice that we're able to do as Christians, we will find ourselves in sin very quickly. So we can't look at what the judges are doing and say, oh, that, 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 I guess that means it's, it's kosher. It's okay for us to go and do. Absolutely not. If the book of Judges is about anything, it's about the people forgetting who God is, completely forgetting what he commanded, completely forgetting what kind of God he is, and just doing what everyone else in the world is doing, just like it said in the video. So starting off in Judges 1.1 and 1 through 5, it doesn't start off that bad, actually. Um, the Lord, they ask who should go up against the Canaanites first in verse one. They ask, the Lord responds. He says, Judah, send Judah out. They go, they obey, and they even win. So things don't start off that bad. The tribe of Judah, very important, by the way. If you're unfamiliar with the, the tribe of Judah, it's really interesting as you start to learn these things and trace the line of Judah throughout scripture. In Genesis 48, Jacob blesses his 12 sons. Judah specifically, he gives this prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ that would come one day. And all the Old Testament is just looking forward to this Christ that's going to come one day. Jesus, who is from the line of Judah. And you can follow it from Judah to Perez, you know, to, to Ruth, to David, all the way up until Jesus. Me and, me and uh, I think Mark is here today. Me and Mark were kind of nerding out about that in group the other day. He might be back in the kids. Oh, hey, yeah. We were nerding out about that in group the other day. But, but the, the genealogy is crazy. Sometimes it's kind of boring reading through it, but when you start to understand it and see it, and if you're reading through the scripture genealogy uh, uh, chronologically, 
it's really interesting to see how God has been orchestrating all these things together to bring Jesus through this line. Because it's crazy. Through, through a human perspective, it could have never been done. So the line of Judah goes out. Some people say that there may be a little fear from Judah because in, in verse 3, Judah said to Simeon, hey, come up with me and take this territory with me. So maybe Judah was kind of hesitant and wanted another tribe to come with them. I don't think that's the case. Simeon's territory that was allotted to them was actually inside Judah. So it kind of makes sense for them to go fight together. Uh, there, there's a lot of background information that can be put in here, a lot of names and a lot of places. So they go, they're successful. While this isn't the main point of this passage, it is certainly a great matter of application for us that to go and do anything in our own strength or, or our own perceived wisdom without consulting the Lord, consulting his word and many of the gifts is given us like the church and the council of good, wise brothers and sisters is kind of foolish for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, you could be needlessly unsuccessful. God could use an unsuccess in your life to build you, to grow you in all different kinds of ways, but without coming to him, you could just be needlessly unsuccessful in some kind of endeavor that you partake in. But also, you could find yourself opposing God. So, so far, things are going pretty good. They win. You look at verse 6 through 7. You have King Adonai Bezek, which some of you may be familiar with the word Adonai. It's just Lord. So this is Lord Bezek or King Bezek. He flees. They pursue him. And God delivers him over to their hand. And this is an interesting thing that happens to the king. If you read through there, where they cut off his thumbs and big toes. Because he had done so to many other kings. And this is one thing that God does throughout the scripture. He uses irony to bring down the wicked. Oftentimes he brings their own sin back in on top of their head. If you remember Pharaoh from the book of Exodus, very popular story, the, the Red Sea splits and the Israelites go through it. Pharaoh would have been fine. His armies would have been fine if they just would have let them go. But his own pride ultimately crushed him as he was compelled to pursue the Israelites and God brought back his own sin on top of his own head. A less popular book, uh, the book of Esther, if you read that, Haman, the, the antagonist in that story, he had created gallows to hang Mordecai, one of God's people. So he created you know, a hangman's noose to basically see Mordecai hung. But at the end of the story, who was hung? Well, it was Haman. It wasn't Mordecai. God used his own wickedness and basically punished him with this. And many times God does this. Here in the story, we see that Bezek's thumbs and big toes were cut off as he had done to so many other kings before him. He, had, he says, 70 other kings I have done this to, and now God has done the same to me. And it's crazy. At, at the cross, we see the ultimate act of ironic justice from God. Jesus is crucified on a Roman cross, and it seems as if death has won. It looks as if Satan was victorious in accomplishing what he set out to do, and it looks as a very dark moment. But the very cross with which Jesus was crucified was the very instrument with which he crushed the head of the serpent and ushered us into salvation. Now through faith, we partake of the salvation with which Jesus has given us. Although it looked bleak, it looked dark, it looked like there was no hope, God used that irony basically to bring it back on top of so God does this many times throughout scripture and he's doing it here with King Bezek and Bezek even acknowledges the the justice that God brought on him he even sounds a little repentant and it's true that a justice system that's soft on crime soft on sin it's not really good not not for the criminal not for the offender. Look at Bezek's life. It didn't end well for him or those with which he brought evil upon. 
Ecclesiastes 8.11 says that when, when evil is not punished, people are emboldened to go do good things or, or uh, do more evil. When, when justice isn't brought swiftly, they're just like, well, I, I guess I can get away with even more and more and more. And unfortunately, my kids are like this too. When, I, when I'm not swift, when, when Miles or Valkyrie or Titus or Eva go and, and do something wrong and I, I'm like, I'm not quick to jump on it. And it's so hard as a parent because you want to give them all the grace in the world. And it's like, I, I don't want to punish you. I don't want to see you cry, bawling in the corner, wiping your snot on the, on, the, you know, on the paint or anything that I have to wipe off later. It's just, it's gross and it's disgusting. But also it kind of hurts my heart a little bit when they're devastated. And I don't want to see them sad, but the truth is I also love them and I don't want them to, that same behavior, I don't want that to carry on to adulthood where just nobody else likes them. Not everybody in the world is going to have the same grace for my kids that I have, you know, and I don't want that behavior to continue, and I, and I don't want it to get to the point where they're doing all kinds of evil and lawlessness, and it just carries on. I don't want to bring justice on them quick, um, but it's, it's like necessary to see them grow and walk away from that and not continue on in their sin. So they defeat the king. He cries out. He repents. In verses 8 and 10, we have some more victories. In verses 11, we're reintroduced to Caleb. Quick backstory on Caleb. I don't want to spend too much time here. There's a lot to say. He, he's introduced in the book of Numbers. Moses sends out some spies. Some come back. Some are fearful. Some have no faith. They say, we, we can't go. They're too strong. Don't go into the promised land. We're, we're going to get crushed. Caleb was one of the ones who came back who was faithful and says, no, God will give this to us. I have faith that God will give this to us. So he's a faithful man of God. Uh, he is reintroduced into the story. And in verses 12 and 13, this is one of those verses that make American Christians especially go, what is going on here? This is kind of weird. Because in verses 12, Caleb says, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he began, or and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. That bothers some of us for two reasons. One, uh, it sounds like an arranged marriage situation, and, you know, in America, we just don't do that. So it's culturally really, really weird, and it sounds like basically this woman, his daughter, is a trophy for winning this war. That's one reason it makes us uncomfortable. Two, it says right here, Caleb's younger brother captured it, and he gave him access to it right now. If, you're, if you know anything about, you know, how that whole sibling thing works, you're like, wait a second, were these first cousins? Uh, so that, that makes many of us uncomfortable as well. You do a little digging, that's actually not the case. When it says brother here, this is the same Hebrew word for tribesman. So when it says brother, it means from the tribe of Judah. And this is seen because it says the son of Kenez, but Caleb was the son of Jephunneh. So they did not have the same father. They were not brothers, they were tribesmen. So it's not a first cousin situation. I know that would make many of us uncomfortable. Uh, some of us are probably uncomfortable with the whole daughter thing being given over. Some women are probably like, some single ladies in the church might be like, actually, that'd be kind of nice having a man that'll literally go to war for you. I can't even get a guy to ask me out to coffee. <clears throat> so wherever you lie on the topic, I will we'll just say this. He's clearly talking to the leaders. Um, so his plan wasn't just to marry his daughter off to some scrub or some grunt. This was some leader that was going in to make conquests. And uh, either way, for Americans or Westerners that find problem with this, just a little bit of a gentle rebuke, we're not really in the best place to be giving um, or criticizing other cultures on their view of marriage. Just saying. 
Uh, it's like the guy on your basketball team that talks a good game, but is constantly dropping the ball. It's like, okay, buddy, sit down. Uh, between the way we, we pray marriage in our movies and videos and our divorce rate, I think we need to do a little self-reflection before we sit there and look at other cultures and how they do uh, marriage. But also, this is the book of Judges. Remember, nothing in here should be taken prescriptively like this is a good thing to do. So that's something to also think of. But also, maybe something for us to look inside of our, ourselves and say, should we be given marriage advice? I don't know. So he also, Caleb is a very faithful man of God in many ways. He demonstrated that in the book of Numbers, but also he passes down some inheritance to his daughter. This is the big problem in the book of Judges. I think one that we'll see in the first chapter and even chapter two a little bit it talks about. I think the people of Israel had a real problem being faithful to what God had called them to and passing on into the next generation what God had commanded them to give. Caleb is one who I see is actually having done something good here with giving his, his daughter an inheritance and, and passing something along to the next generation. And, and I'm not just talking about physical goods or economic things. I, it always kind of bothered me personally. My father didn't leave me much in the way of an inheritance other than his debt. So he didn't really leave me anything other than like a negative balance. But also, he never left me any kind of spiritual inheritance. He was always an unbeliever. He, he never spent any time getting to know his Bible, getting plugged into a faithful community of God, nothing like that. And so not only did he not leave me anything physical, but he left me nothing in, in the way of uh, a, you know, um, his, a relationship with God or any kind of faith or anything like that. If anything, what he taught me about religion was that it was not important. And I think many people today live this way where we don't think beyond our current generation. We think about ourselves and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying this is as a rebuke for like this church or anything, but I think it might be why a lot of people aren't that interested in serving in something like the kids ministry or, or participating in something like a youth group. We kind of stick to our generation or our kind of way of doing things. I, I bumped into a lady and her husband in, uh, in Springfield the other day, and we got to talking, we got to talking about church. And she began to tell me about her church a little bit. And she said, you know, it's, it's, it's an older church. It has a, a much older crowd, basically like 50s and above. And she was, she was kind of hyping it up, talking about how beautiful it is. You know, it's, it's just walking. You feel the presence of all the old saints. And, and no offense, but I was like, that is not good. Where is this church going to go when, when all of you, no, no offense, but like pass away? And also, what would that say if, if the hand just decided, or all the hands just decided, we're all going to go be hands over here. We're not going to be connected generationally to the rest of the church. I, I actually look out at Gospel Community Church, and I, I'm actually somewhat encouraged. And I, I would say if you're in like the 50s or older crowd, like, thank you for sticking around and for putting up with our arrogance, our arrogant youth and our loud music. And please don't go. We, we need you. And to the young people, I would say, like, look to those that other generation, those Christians that have been faithfully walking with the Lord for a long time, and let us think generationally, and let us think about the kids' ministry and who we're going to leave behind and who's coming next. Just like the people of Israel, it says later on, and we'll get to that in a second, but they, the generation, a generation basically took over that did not know God. How did that happen? Does one generation just die and the next takes over? And, but, but that's not how generations work at all. There should have been some kind of a passing of the torch. A torch in Deuteronomy 6, they were even called to do this. They said, 
Teach my statutes to your children. God said, tell them what the Lord has done for you. But this didn't happen. Oftentimes, Joshua and his generation is praised many times as a, as a, a good generation. A very, Joshua was a very good man. You know, and many, many looked to him as like a messianic figure. And I'm not saying Joshua specifically, but many from his generation failed in carrying the torch and passing it on to the next generation. This is something they were called to. Sure, they had a great many successes, just like we could have in our own life. But if we're so focused in on what we're doing and not looking to the future of what God is doing in building and establishing his kingdom here on earth, then we've failed in our task to deliver the gospel, not just cross-culturally, but generationally, throughout the ages. So that was a failure on their part. In Judges 19, we're also introduced to the first sign of a lack of trust in the Israelites. If you look in verse 19, it says that Judah took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This is not the first time that the Israelites have experienced this problem. It's not the first time that they've come across an enemy with chariots of iron. Joshua 17, they experienced the exact same thing. They complain. They said, how are we to do this? They have chariots of iron. And Joshua promised them, don't worry about that. God is on your side and he will deliver you from this. And this time they didn't carry out their mission with faith and were fearful of the chariots of iron, which is crazy because God says he has chariots of fire. If you look in 2 Kings, but in Psalm 68, he even says that his chariots number upon the thousands upon thousands. He has many chariots. They're chariots of fire. This is where David comes in you know, when he faces off a Goliath and he says, who are you, you uncircumcised Philistine, to come against the armies of the Lord? He stands in faith knowing who is on his side. But the Israelites here, they cower. And considering the main points I gave at the beginning of the sermon, their fortune, their failure, their forsaking, all of their sins, all of their problems, and all of their problems, they stem from this seed of doubt, this lack of faith. Yes, they failed. Yes, they forsook God. But it wasn't as if God was asking them to trust in him and have faith in what he was calling them to do based on some kind of blind faith. Had God not done a lot for them? He showed them many miraculous things. He delivered them countless times. He blessed them tremendously and gave them much fortune. They had every reason in the world to believe in him and go forth and take hold of what God had given them and they still shrunk back in fear because of their, their, their lack of faith. They began to doubt. That's why their fortune, the fortune part that was given to them is so important. He blessed them, promised to be with them. He was with them, and they still doubted, and it led to their failure. Look at us. Look at what we've been blessed with. One, we have life, and everybody here is still living. Many of us passed our 20s, it seems. And so God has blessed us tremendously, and even more so, Look at where we live. Not to say that all of God's blessings are somewhat material, but we live in one of the most prosperous nations, not just in the world, but in all time. I mean, to be poor in America, people make the joke to be poor in America means you have two Xboxes and not three. God has tremendously blessed us, and we should be incredibly grateful for all we have. And he's also not the, the watchmaker God who set things up and then checked out. He, he's entered into our suffering. He entered into all that we do. Jesus came into our suffering. He came and experienced what we did. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be turned in for a crime you didn't commit. Oftentimes we portray Jesus on the cross with a, with, a, with a cloth on, but reality was he was probably hanging up there naked. And so he even knows what it's like to be sexually shamed for some of us that have experienced those things. 
So he's not even a God far off from our suffering. He's actually entered into it and promised to purpose all of it for our good and his glory. He's given us salvation through faith in Jesus. All these things, the church, his word, both of which we often cast at the side for fleeting pleasures. And we still doubt the goodness of God. We seek satisfaction in so many other things. And like the Israelites, we oftentimes give up the fight. Give up the fight against many other things. We say, I can't control my sexual urges. I love to steal. I just can't stop. I get so angry sometimes. I just can't help myself. Or I'll always be a liar. I'll always be a coward. It's just the way I am. And we accept defeat. We can do it. And we consign ourselves to evil and to sin and to lawlessness. But the truth is we can't do it. We cannot save ourselves. The Israelites, the truth for them was they were outmatched. They were outnumbered and they would have become fodder for their enemies had they attempted to do it in their own strength, through their own pragmatic way of thinking and figuring things out. And just like them, we will also buckle under the weight of our own sin and temptation of the enemy. But God... But God has done something about this. He hasn't just left us in our sin. And I'm not joking when I, when I ask this, but is there a sweeter clause in all of Scripture? Just those two words, but God. Our, our, our condition is something like that of the Israels here in verse 215 as we come down to it. It, it, it moves into a very dark and bleak place. And what was impossible through their own means and what oftentimes is impossible for us, especially when it comes to the matters of salvation. In Matthew 19, the disciples, you know, Jesus kind of gives them a little instruction and sends this rich man away. And they go like, Jesus, who could be saved? How is this even possible? And Jesus says, well, with man it is. But with God, all things are possible. When we demonstrate the same faithlessness that the Israelites had, we can kind of expect a share in the defeat that they had, in the failure that they had. Whether it's with our own personal struggle with sin or even looking forward to the hope that we have in salvation, if we think that we're somehow going to accomplish it for ourselves and, and obtain it through our own merits or deeds, we're going to be found wanting before the judgment seat of God. From verse 19 to the end of the chapter, we just have a summary of failure after failure after failure from the Israelites. That was just from this, it was a result of their lack of faith in God. It, it, it talks again and again about how they failed to drive out. They even, they even put some of them into forced labor, which is what they were doing back in Egypt. And so now they're even beginning to take on some of the practices of the surrounding pagan nations. You see the seeds of that. God had promised them a land of abundance where God would dwell with them. I mean, does this not sound like the garden? Doesn't it sound like heaven, the very thing that we look forward to and hope for? But it's also the thing we'll never possess in our own strength. Here we have the failure to take what God commanded and what he promised he would accomplish. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we have God's response. And in Judges 2, 1 through 5, we see the start of this cycle in the book of Judges that Becca mentioned in the introduction video. The people forget God. They forget him. They engage in all kinds of sin, all kinds of evil, all kinds of wickedness. They begin to adopt some of the practices of the pagan nation. God rebukes them in some form. He uses, either uses someone else uh, 
to help drive them back to God. They repent, they cry out. God will raise up a judge, he'll deliver them, he saves them, they praise him, they follow him for a little bit, they get complacent and they fall back into the same sin again. They completely forget about who he is and carry on. And it's crazy, God, God wants to bless them so bad it seems. He's almost, he, he has done all the work. He's done almost everything. He's saying, I'm trying to give you this good thing. All you have to do is trust in me and do it. And it's crazy, the rebellion that they come into. But the truth is, we oftentimes do the same thing. My oldest uh, is like this with almost everything. I, I, sometimes I try to give her a good thing, and I swear it's just she just wants to be rebellious and will say no. And, and what's terrible about that is she's the oldest, so everybody kind of steps in tow. Last night, I, you know, I went to give him a bath, and I, and I say, hey, you guys want to go take a bath? And of course, Eva's like, no. And I know they want to take a bath. They love taking a bath. They, they're playing up there. They're splashing in the water. They're giggling. They're having a great time. They have a bunch of bath toys. They love it. She just wants to say no because it wasn't her idea. It was dad's idea to take a bath, so I'm going to say no. And of course, it goes down the line. Then the second oldest says no, and the third oldest says no. The only one that was excited about it was the only one to not, you know, not old enough to know what's going on. Titus is like not even two years old yet, and he's like, okay, I'll come. He, he knows it's fun. And, and I swear not even a minute, you know, I was like, all right, fine, I'll go take a bath. I'm going to go have fun. Bye. And not even a minute later, all the kids were upstairs begging me to put them in the bath. They're like ripping off their clothes. They're like, yeah, we want to take a bath. It's like, and I was like, yeah, I know you want to take a bath. You love taking a bath. I was trying to do something nice for you. I was trying to not let you sit in your filth any longer, and, that, and you guys like it. But they'd rather just be rebellious and say no. And oftentimes that's us. There's so much that God has in store for us, but we'd rather hold on to our sin. You know some of the things I'm talking about. Do you feel blessed when you participate in that stuff? Do you feel like somehow you're, you're missing out when you're not lashing out on your kids in anger or clicking on that website? Do you feel like God's like holding something back from you? Or do you think he, he absolutely has something so much better in store for you, but instead we'd rather, we'd rather just say, no, I got this. I, I want to do my own thing. It's just like human nature, and it's so funny that kids kind of draw out. So I, mean, I often say of Miles, I, I love him. He's kind of like my, my favorite kid, but he's also like my least favorite sometimes because he does stuff sometimes, and I'm like, that is so frustrating because I do the exact same thing. You're like the spitting image of your father, and it drives me nuts. I held him in my arm one time and took him to a mirror, and I was like, who's that? And I was pointing to him, and he goes, daddy. He, goes, he does look just like him. So as, as I said earlier, when, it, when we come to chapter 2, 6 through 10, it says they forgot God. We, we covered this a little bit already. How was it that they forgot God? I think it was a failure on the previous generation. It's something we need to look into our own hearts. Why are we so concerned with ourselves, with our own generation? Why aren't we looking forward to the future? And it's something that we have to ask, how can we be less short-sighted, look generationally, and carry it on into the next generation? And in verses 2, 11 through 15, we'll close, we'll close up here. I got to be honest with you, this, we're not ending in a good place today. Verses 11 through 15 is pretty dark, and it doesn't look good for the people of Israel. If you look down at 15, it says, whenever they marched out, this is kind of how it closes. Whenever they marched out, earlier on, it says they began to do all kind of evil. They're participating in the pagan worship, which means they were probably sacrificing their children up to Baal. So this is awful. They've just engaged in the worst of things possible. And 15 says, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. 
as the Lord had warned. So things don't look good for the people of Israel. And this is actually where we're going to close the day. Um, some of us may be in a place like this with the Israelites. We recognize the good fortune with which God has given us. We acknowledge our failure to do what he's commanded. And we, we feel regretful and confess our forsaking for, the good, for, the, for his goodness. We forsake his goodness for evil things. So we begin to do evil things and do something completely different. This isn't the end of the book of Judges. And it's certainly not the end of the story of what God is doing. And the hand that may feel so heavy upon you could be the very thing with which God is turning you back to himself. In Hebrews 12, it talks about the discipline of the Lord. When we brought our foster child, Valkyrie, in, one of the things the foster agency said was, don't discipline her differently than you do your own children. Why would they say that? Because if I discipline her in a different way, then she feels as though she's an illegitimate child, that she's not even one of my own. As he did the Israelites, it doesn't mean that he's forsaken you or forgotten. He, you're still one of his children. He's still trying to draw you in. And this is an important lesson in matters of salvation that we, we need to rely upon him as the Israelites here did not. We rely upon him for our hope into entering into the promised land, not by our own good or useless pragmatism, but solely through faith alone. I'm sorry this is such a long passage of scripture. I'll, I'll just wrap up with saying this. Let us not be like this. Let us look to him for deliverance from evil, from our own evil and from the evil that awaits us should we try to mirror our own salvation on our own terms. Let us look to him for victory and we will rise just as Christ did to everlasting life and communion with our God as he promised to his people so long ago. Amen. God, thank you for real, raw books like this that just expose our human nature and our desire just to run from you. Thank you, God, that you don't ignore the plight of our condition. But that, but that you show it for the truth of what it is, but also give us a means of escape. You didn't just leave us here, God. You came in, you rescued us, you delivered us, and we will eternally praise you for what you've done. Amen.